Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast as we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner Brett Boone as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with Super Bowl champion Brian Cox. All right, let's do this. And now, here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. I'm Brett Boone, and today on the program, we sit down with a three-time Pro Bowler, a Super Bowl champion, and he spent 12 years in the NFL from 1991 to 2002. Ladies and gentlemen, Brian Cox. Brian, thanks for coming on the program. Thanks for having me, Brett. How are you? I'm great. I'm great. Uh, Right out of the gate. QB linebacker relationship. I just had uh, recently on the podcast, we had Rick Meyer on, played against you right. in the early 90s. I told him, hey, we got Beacox coming up. And he said, Booney, that, that man is a maniac. And he said it <laughs> in, a very, in a very complimentary way. Uh, how, were you kind of known like that? And, and what, was that, what was that relationship you had as a linebacker, quarterback, what was the whole cat and mouse? Well, um, first of all, Rick Meyer was a former teammate with the Chicago Bears. So after he left Seattle, he came to Chicago. Uh, and so he was a great guy, a uh, great teammate. Um, that relationship with quarterbacks, I always – I didn't like quarterbacks because they always got more attention. And that made me jealous. I was a very jealous player. (laughs) (laughs) They got all the commercials. They got all the money. Everybody said they won the game when they didn't hit anybody or didn't make a catch. So I was always envious of that position. But uh, being being honest, though, I always saw myself as the quarterback of the defense. Uh, Most linebackers, in particular middle linebackers, will – you know, quarterback the defense to make the calls and stuff. So I, I kind of saw myself as the quarterback of the defense, but I was always envious of that quarterback position. You know, what's amazing is is on the baseball side of things, uh, you always get along with your teammates. But but I'll right. be honest, I I never liked having a relationship with a pitcher. Like when I when I, you know, when I meet pitchers that were my teammates and and I ended up you know kind of liking them. And then they go mm-hmm. off, you know, and they play on another team. I never liked that when I had a, a pitcher on the mound, you know, an opponent that, that was actually my buddy. I felt like it gave him a little bit of an edge. I'd be walking to the plate and he'd give me that, you know, that rise smile. I don't know if that was his strategy, but but I just like right. kind of kind of hating you from afar. You know what I'm saying? So I, I really did. I stayed away from pitchers for, for most of my career, ended up enjoying a few guys. Some, you know, some, sometimes when you're teammates, you can't help but like somebody, but I really, from a strategic standpoint, I stayed away from pitchers. Right. I, I, I can certainly agree with that. I remember when I, when I left Miami and I went to play for the New York Jets, I remember the first time I sacked Dan Marino, he cussed me out so bad. <laughs> but I, I love the guy. I love him to death, so I went to pick him up, and he cussed me out. I said, get the hell away from me. I said, okay, I'll talk to you after the game, Dan. <laughs> or, or I'll see you in a couple more plays, Dan. Oh, oh I'll see you soon, Dan, yeah. So it was, it was always good to have those kind of rivalries. You're born in East St. Louis, uh, Take me through Brian Cox as a little kid, your childhood. Uh, as I know now, um, 
I, I was the middle of five, um, four boys, one girl. My sister is younger than me. She's a year younger than me. And then I have a younger brother. But um, in my neighborhood, our family, we were a middle-class family. We stayed down the street from the project. So our house was the neighborhood house. Everybody came to our house to eat. Everybody came to our house to hang out. And we didn't have a lot. When I say a lot, we had most of what we needed and some of what we wanted. And um, my stepdad did an incredible job of marrying my mom, who had four kids at the time. And he treated us as we were his own. Um, my dad was still in the picture, so... I had two dads, two moms, and, you know, all of them got along because they wanted to make sure that the kids thrived. And um, so I was the probably 22nd best player on my football team. And the only way that I got recognized was uh, scouts and recruiters came to the games to watch other players, and they saw me and – Fortunately, I was able to go to college uh, based on that. But East St. Louis is uh, its a rough place. I'm not going to lie. But I will say this. There are a lot of really good people there, a lot of friendly people. Unfortunately, the bad overshadow the, the good. Uh, there are a lot of really nice families. There are really good people. But there are a lot of bad things that happen in East St. Louis. And so for me, I had to learn to fight at a very early age. Um, it was like either you had to learn how to fight or you had to learn how to run. Well, I couldn't run, so I learned how to fight. And so um, that carried on through my career. But as I look at it now and I look back on it, I was just saying that I was a, a, a young, scary boy, immature, that was afraid not to get sent back to East St. Louis. I was fighting to not come back to East St. Louis. And so... Um, whatever I had to do within reason, legally, I was willing to do. That means if I had to fight, it means if I had to scratch, claw, kick, uh, whatever I had to do uh, in the game, I was willing to do that. I'll tell you, it's really interesting when you, when you say – uh, the way the way you came up and and your high school experience and college, you said you were twenty seven. Oh, I don't know if I believe that, but you were twenty second best on your high school team. It's Absolutely. it's the I didn't start until my senior year. Really? So it, it yeah, and that's never, the story. We never lost a game in high school. We were undefeated in in, in high school. I never lost a game. Ain't East St. Louis High? It's it's kind of a famous high school. Kellen Winslow, Jackie Joyner, Kersey went there. Uh, Baseball well, player Homer Bush. Homer Bush. Oh, she went did. There. Dana Howard, Jeff Howard. Did uh, Hank Bauer go there? Oh, uh, Hank Hank Bauer. No, I don't think so. But Char even, the ex-charger. Uh, I don't know. I don't know that. But Shelby Jordan went here. Um, uh, Eric Wright played for the San Francisco 49ers from East St. Louis. Oh, uh, I'm going to throw out a kid that I'm going to say a name that people be like, really? You can be St. Louis? Uh, uh, John McEnroe. Let me know. Jimmy Connors. One Jimmy Connors, yeah. Connors. Connors. Jimmy Connors from East St. Louis. And Jimmy people Connors. be like, really? Is he from East St. Louis? Yeah, he went to East St. Louis. Um, so it's been some very uh, – LaFonso Ellis is from East St. Louis. Um, who else? What 
basketball, Missouri basketball coach. Well, can't call his name right now. Um, he's from East St. Louis. Um, we, we've had numerous um, athletes to come out of the city. We call ourselves a city of champion, and I believe that. Yeah, it's very, yeah, that's a lot. And it is a famous high school. But it's interesting to me in, in doing the show and, and guys I've had on, a lot of high-profile players that went on to have great careers have the a similar story to yours. Is Brett, I wasn't a high-round draft pick. I wasn't getting you know paraded around with the red carpet uh, rolled out for me going on recruiting trips. I kind of got noticed because they were coming to see somebody else and they noticed me. And, and it's right. an interesting way to do it. I, I, I would say to a certain point, I, I had that story. You know, I, I went to high school in, in Orange County, California, but I was never that blue chip first round pick. But there were people right. in our league that that ended up going that way. And, and the more they're out seeing, you know, somebody. Uh, the more you get a chance to get noticed, I think it's an interesting way. And then, you know, Rick Meyer, <laughs> he was he was a number two pick in the draft. So I don't think he had a similar experience to ours. But uh, it's interesting. No. It's interesting how we all, you know, we all get to a similar place. And it's a lot of different avenues. Right. And, 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 the, and the biggest thing about it is, is, is what you do when your number is called. Some people have prepared for that moment their whole lives, and some people freeze at the thought of that opportunity coming. And that's why you see some first-rounders and some second-rounders don't make it because when they get to that opportunity or when they get to that moment in time, they're not able to handle it because they didn't prepare for it. Either somebody paraded them around, like you said, and said, this is the next coming, and then there's the other guy that – wasn't getting paraded around that's over there that's hungry that's been working for this moment his whole life and when he gets it he's like it's the Vince Coleman story you ain't sending me back down once I make my debut I ain't going back down to the minors I'll tell you that it's such an interesting topic and I love it I wasn't even planning on going there but I'll give you an example when I, when I go to the minor league side, and, and I worked for the Oakland A's a couple years, I, I think 2015 and 2016, mm-hmm. and I was just a special assistant to the general manager, and I'd go mostly 95% of my work was done at the minor leagues, and a lot of it was done at the lower minor leagues level, A ball, you know, double A. I spent very little time with, with any of the players above double A. Right. And it was amazing to me how I, you know, you'd see that, that first round pick come into camp and with his right. chest puffed out and everybody his whole life's been telling him how great he is. And he could talk a good game, but those are the guys I wanted to look in their eyes and see if they believe what they say. And then there were the kids right. over, you know, the, the ball player, the real baseball player that talked the talk and walked the walk. And, and the, they could be brash, whatever they may, whatever they may be. But I'll tell you what, I'll take that kid that believes in himself and knows he's good. And I and I bring this up a lot. I have a son now playing pro ball, and it's like, it's not what you say when everybody's around. It's not how you behave. It's when you're by yourself in that hotel room and you get out of the shower and it's just you in, it, you and yourself in that mirror. Do you believe everything? Do you believe the hype? If you do, you got a good chance of playing a long time and being successful in whatever sport you may be in. I, I, I think that's the, 
a commonality among all athletes because really there are a bunch of pretenders who talk themselves into being good but don't believe, as you said, when they look in the mirror. And then there are the guys that are the dogs. They might be the underdogs or they might just be the bullies. Like, don't nobody want to bully until they need a bully, until they down 10 points in the fourth quarter and they saying, we, we need somebody to go out there, we need some dogs. Don't nobody like bullies until that time in the game. You know, so I always approached it that way. I was going to be the bully. I wasn't going to back down. And, yeah, I got punched in the mouth sometimes as a bully, but then it's how, how you punch back or how you come back. Because I always said, you know, I can remember playing against Peyton Manning in Indianapolis, and I was always saying, you know, you can't bully a bully because they were undefeated. They would come to New England to play us. And I was like, you can't bully a bully. I'm not afraid of you. Like, it's going to be a fight. Like, you got to recognize it. And the, the, I think it's absolutely correct what you said. Even in baseball, you get kids from all over the world vying for these spots in the minor leagues. The kid that goes there that, that has paid his dues, probably had no shoes, played on dirt fields, did all that, he, he's primed himself to get ready for that moment when it came. And then you got the other kids. And I'm not saying that all kids are this way. You get the kid to come that played on the pristine field and got to travel in the summer leagues by playing all the time and the other kids getting on the bus. That hungry kid is going to beat that, 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 that good kid that, that's been, you know, pampered and babied and nurtured throughout that time most of the time. Now, sometimes you get some dogs that come from that field, that pampered field, but they still just outright dogs. And, uh, so there are a few of those, so you just can't make a blanket statement that all those kids are, are soft. Right. So you go to Western Illinois University. Uh, mm-hmm. your, senior, your senior year, how, how heavily were you, were you recruited, or was it Western Illinois University, and that's where I'm going? Um, you know, if, I, if I'm telling the story honestly, the first time I'd ever been on an airplane – was going to the University of Utah on a recruiting uh, visit. I get on the plane, I go there, they take me skiing. Lovely place, I've never been to Utah, I've never been on a plane. I come home, I tell my mom, mom, I think I found my college, I wanna go to Utah. My mom says, baby, I just got one question. How you gonna get back out there? Mama don't have the money to put you on a plane back and forth to come back for breaks. I think you need to go somewhere where you can drive in the area. Broke my heart. It crushed me. It took me about a week or two to regroup. And then I decided uh, I was going to go to some schools that I could drive around on recruiting visits. So I went to Missouri. I went to uh, Illinois State. I went to Western Illinois on the rest of my recruiting visits. I had a a cousin that played with me. We said, okay, we're going to go to the same school. And so Western was a school that offered both of us. But I played for Bob Shannon here in East St. Louis, and he was like a father figure to all of us. He said, why don't you go to Western Illinois? That guy's never lied to me. He said, if you come there, you'll have a chance to play. Uh, the head coach at the time, uh, Bruce Craddock, he was going through um, a battle with cancer. So the assistant coach, Randy Ball, was taking over. He came to my house on the recruiting visit. He told my mom, your son had graduated if he come to Western Illinois. And that was it. That wrapped it up. My mom said, if you're going to take care of my son like you say you are, 
then that's where he's coming. And that was how I got to Western Illinois. Go to Western Illinois for four years. You're a two-year starter. You end up being an All-American your senior year. Um, how was that transition from high school football to college football? Um, it wasn't. The, for me, the transition was, again, my whole life I've been the underdog. And so for me, it was always I was fighting against um, not coming back to East St. Louis. So my whole situation from high school all the way through, I know now, based on um, counseling and talking to people, was based on fear. I was afraid to fail. I was afraid to get sent back to East St. Louis. And so that's why you saw me act out in some situations. And I didn't realize until a few years ago. But the only difference between Western Illinois and East St. Louis was the first game we lost, I cried like a baby because I had never lost a game in high school. And then the second thing was I had to put on weight. I went to Western Illinois wearing 184, and I left there wearing 215. So the weight was the big thing for me during that time period, like what I needed to advance and become the player that I wanted to be. So, you know, it's for those of you listening to the Boone podcast, Brian and myself, we met each other recently at a, at a charity event and I, I, I'm 190. OK, now I'm standing next. This is a big man here. And when he says he went to college at 180, that, that kind of makes me chuckle <laughs> when I'm 190. <laughs> right. You're right. right. But I, I, I don't hit the golf ball as far as you do. And uh, you're 190 and I'm like 280 right now. <laughs> All right, so let's let's get to it. Senior year, you're an All-American. You're fifth-round pick of the Miami Dolphins. And I always ask the football players we have on, what was that draft day like for you? A little different than it is now. You know, every, everything now is, man, everybody's everywhere. Even baseball is getting into a, to a digital draft, and, and everything plays out on TV. But take me through draft day for you uh, after being an All-American your senior year. Okay. Well, it was, it was, it was, <laughs> it was funny. It was really funny. So back then it was a 12 round draft. I got drafted in the fifth round, which came on day two of the draft. So the draft started at like seven thirty Saturday morning. So the Dolphins called to draft me and there's Don Shula on the other end. And he's saying, it's Donald Franklin Shula. I want to draft you in the fifth round. I said, okay. I hung up on them. I had a draft party the night before, so I was hung over. I probably just went to sleep at six thirty, seven o'clock. <laughs> so he calls him. I hang up on him. And, uh, you know, he calls me back. I was like, oh, I'm sorry. It must have been a bad connection or something. So he drafts me. And um, I just graduated. Uh, I was graduating in two weeks. So I went down to minicamp. I came back. I went to graduation at Western Illinois. And I was married at the time with a kid that was – married i said okay i'm going down to miami right now to start training i'm not gonna wait until ota the training camp back back then i don't know what they call the off-season condition so i went down there and got right in with the guys i started working out with the guys and i told him um i told the guys i said i can't lift everybody was laughing at me because i wasn't very strong i was lifting with pete steinovich i was lifting with the kicker And all the guys would laugh at me. And I'd say, well, we put pads on. It's going to be a different story. I'm going to beat the blank out of you, and I'm going to beat the blank out of you. And 
you know, when we put the pads on, we started, I remember being eighth on the depth chart. And I was behind a bunch of my heroes. I was behind EJ Jr., Hugh Green, John Offerdahl. Uh, uh, it was one more guy, uh, John Grimsley. It was like we had a, a, a veteran room of like eight, nine, ten-year veterans in there. And so EJ Jr., Hugh Green were two of my favorite players growing up. I started out number eight on the depth chart back then. And three weeks later, I worked my way up to starting row. I just, I, I was, what helped me was Hugh Green held out and then everybody else, I just took control. I wasn't, I wasn't going to sit out. I would, they were going to have to, they were going to have to take the job from me. Cause again, I wasn't getting sitting back to East St. Louis. I wasn't coming back. Don Shula, Wayne Heizinga was the owner. He he eventually became the owner of the Marlins as well. And you talked earlier about the legendary Dan Marino. The, mm -hmm. the interesting thing for me from the football side of the baseball is a little bit different. You know, you get drafted and we go to the minor leagues and you get, you know, you get called up to big league camp or, or maybe invited to big league spring training. So you kind of rub elbows with the guys that, you know, for me, it was was uh, Griffey was getting into big leagues. And it's like, oh, there's Griffey, you know. All right. Mm -hmm. So so by the time I had earned the right to be in the big leagues, I, I had already you know, met all these guys. And I ended up playing for Lou Pinella, who I grew up watching. And, and I'm always interested in football, especially when you when you go from Western Illinois, now you're headed to the Miami Dolphins, Don Shula, mm -hmm. who's pr mm -hmm. pretty much as, as legendary in the coaching uh, business in the NFL as there's ever been. You got Dan Marino probably at the time considered, if not the, one of the greatest quarterbacks all the time. Is that a big deal for you? Or are you thinking – I'm, I'm going to keep doing what got me here, having that chip on my shoulder. I'm hungry. I ain't going back to St. Louis. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> um, I, I'll tell you a, a, a story. The first time I ever met Dan Marino, I'm standing up at the counter in uh, minicamp, and I'm waiting on a pair of socks and a jock strap. And I'm sitting there, and Dan Marino comes up and walks on side of me, and he asked for something. I, I I can't recall what he asked for. And I was sitting there just looking at him. I I wasn't in awe. I wasn't worried. I was just kind of looking at him. And he said, hi, my name's Dan Marino. It treated me like like one of the guys from day one. And he introduced himself. Had he not introduced himself, I never would have said a word to him. And so he was that kind of teammate. And let me just tell you something. I mean this in all sincerity. I've been teammates with Tom Brady. I've been played against uh, uh, Peyton Manning, Eli Manning, all these guys. Without a Super Bowl ring, Dan Marino is unequivocally the best quarterback I've ever seen with my own two eyes. Period. And Period. I would say, uh, uh, and a lot of guys probably, definitely from our generation, probably have a, a similar view to you. Yeah, I, I, I think, and I tell people all the time, I played on the defense uh, with Dan Marino. We lost a lot of games, 35 to 28, and he won the games by himself. He didn't have a 1,000-yard rusher until Jimmy Johnson became the head coach. He, uh, he put the team on his back. And he just dropped back and people knew we were throwing the ball and they couldn't stop him. And I played on the defense. Uh, unfortunately, um, our defenses weren't 
the greatest. But if we had defense like some of these other guys with some of these teams, um, he'd have so many Super Bowl rings. But even without it, I've never seen a better natural passion. Like, to me, the two best that I've seen play, I'm taking um, Marino one, Elway two, and probably I'd put a one moon in there as three. And people can talk Brady and they can talk Peyton Manning. They can talk all these guys they want. Um, you know, that was, that was a great, that was a great guy. Yeah. And Brian, you know, what's, what's really uh, interesting to me, the debate always in all sports, but especially football and, and, you know, analysts and, and supposed ex- experts, they always want to say, yeah, but how many rings does he have? The right. baseball, they do it a little bit, but it's more more in football. And, and I always think of Dan Marino. I always think of Dan Fouts. On the baseball side, the greatest player I've ever seen, hands down, like you said, Marino. And, and, and in my opinion, not even close. It's not even close. Mm-hmm. And I played with and, a lot of, uh, with and against a lot of great players. Barry Bonds is by far the best player I've ever seen live. And the second best player wasn't even close to good enough. They couldn't hit behind him. Now, the best player right. I ever played with was Ken Griffey Jr. Just he right. was from another planet. We were the same age. You know, I was this hot right. shot coming through the minor leagues thinking I'm good. And I tell the story all the time. And I get to the big leagues and Kenny's already been there for three years and we're the same age. And, and I'm, it, it kind of, that was my first bit of humble pie. Like, wow, I think I'm good. This guy's already, you know, this guy's already got 80 big league home runs and, and I'm, I'm just getting here. Right. Both those guys, they don't have rings. Now, in, right. in, in my opinion, that has, Kenny didn't even get to play in a World Series. The best player I've ever played with never even got to play in a World Series. Now, how much was that on him? Kenny was as clutch as anyone I've ever played with. He was as talented as anyone I could, uh, I've ever played with. He played an unbelievable center field. The fact that he didn't get a chance to go to a World Series, that has nothing to do with him. So for me, I always have that argument with, yeah, it's nice to have the rings, and but you got to have the teammates that help get you those rings. I look at the Yankees in right. the, in the – uh, the mid nineties where they had, you know, they won four or five world series. That's not because of one great player. That's because they had an, they built an unbelievable, like mini dynasty. And a lot of, a lot of sports franchises do that for a short period. But, but to say, Oh, he's not as great because of the rings. It to me is, I know a lot of guys that have two, three rings that weren't very good players. Right. Ridiculous. And I, I I think that's, that's uh, that, that is so true. When you look at um, a guy like Barry Bonds and you say he's the greatest you ever saw, I don't care anything about the steroids or supposed steroids or whatever. He was hitting home runs when he was in Pittsburgh, and he was that kind of player before he got to San Francisco and that whole thing. He just, instead of hitting a home run 330, it went 350 or 380. I mean, it's still a home run at the end of the day. And um, so I wish that I wish that guys like him would get into the Hall of Fame because he deserves it, regardless of what they say is tainted, not tainted. The guy was just a great player. You said it out your own mouth. He was the best you ever saw with steroids, without steroids, for steroids. I mean, I, the guy was great, man. And, and you know, it, I think in, in football, you really can't do that. It's kind of like you can't build dynasties. I like it when people uh, – um, 
don't put together teams of superstars. I like it when they just fill the team and say, go out there and play. And I think baseball to me has gotten so ridiculous right now with all this, um, uh, all this analytics and stuff. It's stupid because to me, they talk about don't bunt. It makes no sense. If you got a shortstop and nobody playing their third base, why not take the open base? You're still at first base. I don't understand that. <laughs> I love it. We got Brian Cox on the show. He's a baseball fan. He's watching. Yeah. No, without, a without a doubt. We're and, and I, right now. Oh, I'm telling you, and, and I, it drives me crazy too. And it's the reason I think you're not seeing the bunts is because they can't bunt or they won't bunt. You know, I played with a guy or I played against the guy. He's going to the Hall of Fame tomorrow. Uh, he's already been inducted, but his ceremony is tomorrow. Larry Walker, one of the best, mm-hmm. one of the best players I ever played against. He was hitting Colorado, 30. Colorado Rockies. and then Colorado, Colorado Rockies. Yeah, he was hitting 30 home runs a year. But I'll tell you what, if you put a shift on him and left mm-hmm. third, third base vacant to lead mm-hmm. off an inning, he would bunt every single time. Guess, guess, how, guess how you get them? Not, guess how you get them not to shift on you? You bunt right. in their face then, three or four times. Then, they can't shift. And then at least you got the third the the third baseman playing his position in the shortstop, maybe over second base. And now maybe you can just kind of you know tap one through you know the eight hole or something. But to me, it's like these guys going up there and they're so concerned with power and hitting home runs. In a lot of ways, analytics has screwed baseball up, and it's made it less fun because everybody shifts everybody. They shift pitchers. I'm like, what the hell are they thinking? I'll give you a story, a quick one. I'll give you a quick story. I'm sitting in the – this is probably four or five years ago, and I'm sitting in the uh, the booth, and I, I, won't, I won't reveal where because then you'll, people might be able to find out who said this. But I'm sitting mm-hmm. in a booth. We're watching a big league game, and, and – turns to me and he says, Booney, he said, uh, what do you think about shifts nowadays? And I kind of looked around and I looked at him. I said, I, I don't like him. I said, I, I think as a defender, I need to, there's a lot of things that goes into defensing a hitter. It has to do with who's on the mound, how accurate the, the pitcher is on the mound that night. I, I need to know if he calls for a fastball away, it's going to be a fastball away. You know, if I got Greg Maddox on the mound, he calls for fastball away. I know he's going to miss by an inch. If I get a fourth, mm-hmm. fifth starter in there, he might call for a fastball away and miss up and in. Now, as a defender, I can't trust where that ball is going to be, so I got to be on my toes a little bit more. So I like to control how I defend, where I shift, where I'm leaning, the tendencies of the hitter, bat in the zone. So I said, well, long story short, I don't like the shift. And this was a an assistant general manager for a big league team. I said, you've got all the data. You know everything. I said, at the end of the day, 162, you shift every pitch or you just play the game straight up. What's the mm-hmm. results? And he looks at me and he goes, it's a wash. And I said, so why are we doing it? Why do we have index cards for all these kids? And he goes, it's what they, it's what they want to do. So I, I, I had that five years ago. I think a lot of the stuff they have nowadays uh, from an analytical mm-hmm. perspective, if, mm-hmm. if used correctly, can be really beneficial. But if you just play the game based on a computer, and, and I, don't, I don't shift the blame totally on the players today. It's how they're brought up through the system. 
You're taught what is important. What is important is launch angle and exit velocity. And we're getting away from the basics of, first of all, you got to be a good hitter. Everybody doesn't have power. But if they tell you it's important to have power, well, you're going to eliminate half the half the players. You either are a home run hitter or you're not. Now, if you're not a home run hitter, you can develop power, but you're not going to go from a non home run hitter to 40 home runs. It's not physically it's not physically possible. So to put that in a young player's brain, I think it's detrimental to him. And I don't put it on him. That's what the organizations are doing. I think you're going to see a little bit of a, of a comeback to the center when it comes to, mm-hmm. you know, like you said, as a fan, and I can tell you watch baseball a little bit as a fan, you see it, man, it just went from the game. I love to completely analytical. I think you're going to be a shift back to the center. I still think it's going to be 2021 and use as much data at your fingertips as possible. But I think you're going to see a little bit of that, that uh, and I don't say old school, but classic baseball come back. I'd love to see start stealing bases again. You watch a team like the Tampa Bay Rays, right? There's no big stars on that team, and they're quiet, right. and you don't hear much about them. But you got a bunch of baseball players on that team that play a bunch of different positions and are fundamentally sound. And they beat the brakes off people. And all of a sudden, you look up year in and year out. They got a $60, 70000000 million payroll, and they're winning 100 they're games winning. again. <laughs> right. right, because they play That's the game right. right. They've developed a camaraderie as a team. They've got something about them. They move runners over. They hit a sack right. fly in a sack fly situation. And, right. and that, 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 that causes team chemistry. If the 25th man on the roster is watching Nelson Cruz, the star in the middle of their lineup, play the game right, move runners, do the little things, well, damn, if, if, if Nelson Cruz is doing it, well, then I sure as hell better do it. All of a sudden, you got everybody pulling on the same end of the rope, and you got right. some serious chemistry going on, and they go out and they beat you, and, and you, you look up after a four-game series, you go, how did that team just whoop us three games again? Because they play the right. game right. They still they right. still have shifts. They still have analytics, but but the right. fun that they they play the game right. And you talk about bunning. You talk about stealing a base, man. I I love you mentioned Vin, Vince Coleman when we were coming out. That's what right. made the game fun. Ricky Henderson would draw a walk in the ninth inning, steal second when everybody in the stadium knew he was running. Steal third. Right. Somebody hit a fly ball and they'd win two to one. He took over That's an right. entire game. That was what was so exciting about that type of baseball. I'd love to see it come back. So would I. And I, I think there's a place for analytics. I'm not saying that it's not, but I'm just saying sometimes people outsmart themselves. And then the other thing that I think about analytics is sometimes people have to create jobs and make themselves valuable when they don't need to become valuable because some of it is just nonsense. And so my angle on analytics in football is there's too many moving parts to be that analytic, analytical, analytics driven because there are 22 players on the field at the same time. You can go by the play callers. What's the play caller calling? But there's too many things that can go wrong in a play for analytics to say, well, in this play, you ought to do this. It won't work in football to me. And the people that try to do it, I'd love to play them all the time. I'd whoop them. I'd have a, as a player, 
I'd have a winning record against those people most of the time. <laughs> All right, 91. You, you start 13 games. Uh, I believe you guys go 8-8. Eight and eight. But 92 is a season where uh, you kind of make a name for yourself. You, you uh, make your first Pro Bowl. You guys get to the uh, AFC Championship game against the Bills, that famous Bills team. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, how was that for you? Two years ago, you're in college. You're at Western Illinois. Now, all of a sudden, you're in the Pro Bowl with Derek Thomas, uh, Cornelius Bennett, Greg Lloyd, and, and uh, Junior Seau. Junior Seau, who came to USC. We, we came in the same year. And and I knew Junior very well, but how was that for you? Two years earlier, you're you're playing at uh like I said, Western Illinois. Now you're you're in the backfield with these guys. I mean, how cool is that for you? I remember my first All Star game. I was like a kid in Christmas. How was that for you? Yes, same. It was it was uh, wonderful. I had the opportunity to take my parents to Hawaii. I had an opportunity to sit down with people like Howie Long and. Um, me, Joe Green, along with those other players that you named, um, people on the coaching staff to sit over there. I learned more about football sitting out by the by the beach drinking my ties than I did in football around. I believe in my mind, players learn more from players than they do coaches. Because players trust players and so when players say something that's been working, it's been something that's been effective they want to put it in their repertoire. And so I think players learn from players best. And it's no different than you being at the all-star game and you taking batting tips from somebody or, hey, this guy tips his pitches or this guy does that. You sitting around and you talking shop. This move works against this team. This move works against this uh, particular player. Um, and basically, I just sat around with my mouth shut and I just listened to all the great players. Howie Long and, and uh, Michael Dean Perry, Michael Dean Perry was so hilarious. He said, if it ain't on one, it's on two, meaning snap count. So if it was on three, he was going to jump off sides every time. <laughs> how we long talked about just, you know, how he played and how he wanted to penetrate. And so you just sat and you learned from great players and you wanted to fit in that group. And then Junior Seau was a guy that was, God rest his soul, he was the most friendliest person. And all he would do was want to make sure everybody was all right. He'd give you the shirt off his back if he thought it would make you happy. And he'd walk around, hey, buddy, how you doing? What's going on, buddy? And then the Derek Thomases of the world, come on, let's go and play golf and let's come and hang out with me. Kind of took me under his wing, God rest his soul. And, you know, you had guys like Cortez Kennedy, God rest his soul, another one that's dead. Cortez was the prankster, all the first-time pro bowlers. He tried to get that room key so he could send the bill to you. And by the time you check out, your bill would be like $10,000 because all the players sent all the drinks to your room. So it was it was just stuff like that. It was just a great experience and a great time to really learn and just kind of talk shop with those guys. Yeah, it's so true what you say. It, and, you know, I remember my first one. I just sat in my locker and looked around. I'm like – because because as kids, you know, growing up, I don't know if this was your story, but I always thought, I'm going to be a big leaguer. I'm going to be a big leaguer. I'm going to be a big leaguer. And then I made it 
you know, I got called up. I'm like, I'm a big leaguer. Now I want to be an all-star. Now I want to be an all-star. And I, and I remember they, I made my first all-star game. I'm like, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh, who am I going to call first? And, and I remember getting there. And this is me, you know, growing up in, in the game with dad playing for 19 years. And it, it's different when you're a player than when you're yeah. a kid tag, tagging along with dad. And I remember yeah. that. You're right, though. The conversations that go on. They're so interesting, and it's not like you're just hanging around a bunch of really good play. You're you're hanging around with the best in the world, and you're getting Absolutely. tips from the best best linebackers in the world that you're used to playing against. Now, for a couple days, your teammates, and you get to learn from stuff like that. Really interesting stuff. I I, I think that's awesome. Yeah. All right, so ninety three, and this is where you got to teach me. I'm a little bit of a layman guy when it comes to defense in the NFL. But you guys switched to a 4-3 defense. You changed from an outside mm-hmm. linebacker to the right side linebacker. Now, for me, mm-hmm. I'm thinking, all right, there's four linebackers, two in the middle, two outside. So what's the difference? Just you're still going to be on the right side. Is that a big difference for a linebacker? Is that a change or it's really no big deal? Um, it's really – it depends. Like, for me, it was no big deal. I played every position in college except for nose tackle, cornerback and true safety. So I, I played everywhere. So the way I grew up was ball is ball. If you're a ball player, you can play anywhere. So what happened was we switched to a 4-3. John Offerdahl got hurt, and so I became the Mike linebacker. So now I'm the signal caller. Now I'm the guy that's playing on the inside. You move me from my natural position and probably my best position, but is what the team needed. So I said, I'll move inside. No issue. I got no problem. Whatever the team needs. So one of the things that I think people have misconstrued about me or messed up is I was one of the most unselfish teammates and players that you would, you would love to play with me. I played for three Hall of Fame coaches in my career. Don Shula, Bill Parcells, and Bill Belichick. When he retires, he'll be a Hall of Famer. Three Hall of Famers don't allow you to be on their team and be captain every year if you're selfish and if you don't do the things you're supposed to do. So, yeah, is, for me, is it an, that was a, it was a no-brainer. I, I wasn't arguing, fighting it. I, I, I relished the idea. You think that much of me to make me the Mike linebacker, let's do it. Yeah, it's amazing, too, and, and just in the game. And, and your persona, and you were, you were kind of – you know, you kind of had that persona. That's a mean guy right there, you know, but maybe he's a puppy dog and his teammates love him to death. I, 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 I've been, especially as a young player in the game, I'd look across the diamond and, and you form opinions of other people. And as time mm-hmm. went on and I grew up a little bit and, and I had some experience under my belt, it seemed, man, nine times out of 10, I'd meet that guy. I'd see him at a restaurant, see him at a bar, sit down, have a and have you, a conversation with wrong. him. You'd be and wrong. I come, yeah, and I come out of there going, "Damn it, I actually like him." Now I can't hate him in my dugout anymore. It was like the pitcher thing for me. I'd rather hate you and not know you because I felt right. like it, it it took away a little bit of my edge. But you're right. You're right. It, it, there's so much. You you said it perfect in the in you know a little bit earlier about. You learn more from players than you do coaches. Tell you what, you go around, how you get a true uh, measure of a man, go around and ask his teammates. 
That's that's when you'll find out what kind of guy he is. I don't care what the press says. I don't care what guys that play against him say uh, that never played with him. Go ask his teammates on the teams he played with what kind of guy he was. You'll get an accurate assessment of of the not only the how good of a player he was with the but the man he was. But the man he was, yeah. And that that was what was important to me. For me, on the five teams that I played for, I've been captain on every team I've ever played for since Little League. Every team. I was never a kiss-ass. I was always an alpha male. But I was the guy that when the players said, you need to go talk to Don Shula because we're getting this and we need to do this, I would go up there for the players and fight. And when they said, go talk to Bill Parcells, and he would cuss me out and kick me out of his office, I was the guy that would go back. But I was also the guy that when the coach came and said, these guys aren't giving me enough, we need to work harder, we need to do more, I'd go in that locker room and I'd say, this is what we're doing. And when Bill uh, Belichick decided to stick with Tom Brady after he benched Drew Bledsoe, I was the guy saying, our commander-in-chief has spoken. So his word is all we need to hear. It ain't no other no other conversation need to take place. I've always been that strong personality, but I could cuss my teammate out. I could argue with my teammate, but if somebody from another team did, I'd try to choke the hell out of them. I'd try to beat the <laughs> hell out of them. And so that's just the way it was. Like, it was like kind of growing up in my household. I could fight with my brother, but if you come and try to intervene or try to break it up, we both going to jump on you. <laughs> That's, That's right. That's the way That's brotherhood right. works. 94, you're a pro bowler again. You guys go 10 and 6. 95, you, uh, you make your third pro bowl. You guys go 9 and 7. You, you lose in the wild card and to the Bills. And, and I wanted to talk about the bills mm-hmm. from that from that period a good friend of mine mm-hmm. is andre reed and mm-hmm. i've talked to him about those bills team and you know i know just how hard it is to get to the final to get to the world series i got to play in one world series man they're hard to get let alone win, win. and right. that bills team you know they lost four years in a row and and it was always right. you know kind of a negative thing like, oh, they lost every Super Bowl. Well, try getting a four in a row. That's pretty tough. I know you right. were hated by the Bills as a player, <laughs> you know, right. from afar, from guys that didn't right. know who you were. And that was a part of that rivalry. You know, I hated the Yankees. Did I personally right. hate the, the guys on the Yankees? No, but I hated going to Yankee Stadium. I wanted to kick your ass every time I was there. And probably right. it was because they kicked my butt more than I kicked theirs. That's but you right. got to have that. You got to have that edge. I want your honest assessment now. All said and done, you look at those Bills team. How good was that Bills team, and how much did that kind of fuel you having that? Having that? Oh, the Bills really hate me. Usually, the teams that hate you, it's because you're pretty damn good and you give them a hard time. That's right. Um, the Bills, looking back on it, were a lot better than I ever gave them credit for. And so there were a few guys on the team that I was friends with that I had really good relationships with. Um, Henry Jones was from St. Louis, and he went to the University of Illinois. So we knew each other. We knew of each other. So we were really good friends. 
Don Beebe had gone to Western Illinois and transferred to Chevron State. So he and I were teammates at Western Illinois. Me and him had fought back to back with each other. So I, I knew what kind of guy he was. And so I, I had love for him. Um, Biscuit was a good guy. Cornelius Bennett was a good guy. He turned out to be a good, good guy. And then, to my surprise, the guy that really saved me um, was was Bruce Smith. I was at one of the Pro Bowls, maybe the last Pro Bowl, and one of the NFL physicians were over there, and he was the drug guy. And so they always wanted to drug test me for whatever, and this guy was reading. I insulted his wife and tried to fight him, and Bruce Smith saved me. He said, don't do it. You're going to throw everything away. But I was really ready to throw my career away. Because this guy had, he had, uh, he had changed my life in terms for the worst. Because he put me through the drug protocol. I ain't never been on no drugs in my life. But to get back to the point, those Buffalo Bills were special. And those four guys off of that team, I really enjoyed and really liked. I didn't care all that much for um, um, uh, Jim. He wasn't one of my favorite players, but then... Dan Marino had a golf tournament and said, hey, you're going to get along. Don't do it. Don't go crazy. And so out of respect for Dan, I kind of I kind of eased off and kind of took it easy on him. Turned out he ended up being a decent guy. But you had to have dislike for the people that you competed against. I would make up stories that they were breaking in my house or that they were doing something because, again, that fear I had of losing and not competing um, – got the best of me most of the time. I was fighting. I wasn't coming back to the hood. And especially, you know, baseball is one thing. Hoops is an, is one thing, but but it, when you're when you're an outside linebacker in the NFL, it, it is kind of important not to be buddy buddy with that quarterback you're trying to kill. I mean, right. it, you got to have you got to have something that that drives you. You know, baseball, uh, no big deal. I, you know, I, I, I kind of have my wits about me and I need to breathe here when I'm hitting. Nobody's trying to mm-hmm. hurt me. They're trying to get me out. So I got to remain poised a little bit. Football, a little different animal. Right. And I, I, I never here's the thing that I, I, I say to people. I never tried to injure anybody because you're playing with a man's career. I tried to hurt everybody, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I, I see never what you're tried. To, I never tried to injure any player, but I tried to hurt everybody. Sure, clean, so, cleanly hurt him. You know, it's like take, right. t- when we used to be able to take out runners at second base. It's like I'm not here to to snap your knee in half, but I'm here for you to feel it when I leave. And I hope you get up in the air because that's your job as a second baseman turning double plays. Get those feet up in the air when I take you out. But I want you to remember that I was there. I don't want to hurt you. I don't want to snap your leg. But I'm here to right. break up this double play, and I want you to remember it when I leave. And I want you to remember if you run across the middle and I hit you because you're not looking and you're running away, you think you're running away and we're playing zone and I hit you and knock you on the ground as to not have to run with you the next time you come across, you're going to be a little slow because you're going to be looking for me. And so right. those type of things change the game because you got some guys that play some of these positions. Uh, now they get away with stuff to kind of play tough that when I played, I could stop that toughness, okay? Because eventually you're going to have to come across here and I'm going to be sitting here and I'm going to knock your head off. Again, not trying to injure you, but I want to hurt you. 
You want to make them think about coming across me. You want you want to put that in in, in their brain, in their psyche. You know, right. if if a quarterback's back there going, oh, if Brian gets to me, he's going to take it easy on me. Well, he's going to be more successful. He's going to be a little more comfortable in that pocket. If he knows if if Coxie comes around the edge. He's going to knock me. He's going to be knocked me into the sidelines. I might be a little hesitant on that throw. I might not be as pinpoint accurate. Right. In, 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 in the time when I played, it was you put your helmet right in the small of the back of the quarterback from the backside and you rip his own to try to strip the ball out. Now, I, I, when I was coaching, I couldn't even teach that. The teaching point is we're going for the ball. Don't touch the man. Get the ball. You know, and that's kind of it's kind of shame, but as uh, one friend of mine said, is you don't have to like the rules; you just got to play by them. They're so true. Isn't it interesting too? On both of our sports, uh, those little nuances you just talked about—they're changing. They're completely different from when you played. But it brings up a point when I'm talking to these kids now with all these instant replays, and you, you got to put the glove on the man if he comes off by a half a centimeter off second base and that super slow-mo cam can catch it well then you're out in my right. day as long as the as long as the throw beats you you apply the tag get in get it in get it out and show the umpire you're out the play's over nowadays right. it's like man I, I don't even know how to teach him how to tag because you've got right. it's almost more dangerous now because you got to keep the tag in there same with right. turning a double play. I turn a double play one way, and and you cheat a little bit. As long as you're in the vicinity, start with the left foot on the bag, but I'm going to cheat. As long as I stay in this little circumference, they're going to give right. me the benefit of the doubt because I got to protect myself because I got a guy barreling in on me, and he wants to knock me out. His whole goal right. is to break up this double play, so it's only one, not two. Nowadays, you got to stay anchored to the bag, and it's a completely different move. I almost take it personal, Brian, at this point, because right. it's like I was a second baseman and how you differentiate differentiate yourself from other second basemen is how you make that pivot around the bag. That's how much separates that separates the good second baseman from the great. And now I feel with the rules where they just have to slide right in and they can't touch you, anybody could turn a double play. Now bring a third baseman over, he could do it. I'm kind of right. offended. <laughs> right. You, you used to have to have some toughness. And now, um, you, not only do you not have to have toughness, but you put yourself in more danger by having to leave a glove down because now you're going to take a spike to the wrist or you're right. going to get hurt more that way than just swiping. I mean, it's, it's crazy. Without a doubt. They try to protect you, but they make it worse. Without a doubt. And, and nobody, you know, the kids nowadays, the, the, the young players that have grown up in this generation of, you know, just slide right into the bag. And they'd never had Bo Jackson barreling down on them, trying to, to <laughs> try to take you out at second base. That's a scary. That's for another time. But that's a, that's a scary man coming at you. I've never had I've never been in the NFL and had that type of man running at me. But I've had him trying to trying to break up a double play. And it, and it was, let me just say this, it was different than anyone that I've ever had try to take me out before. There was some speed and some power. Yeah. I think I played against them one time with the Raiders, but they had so many good backs because they had Marcus Allen. They had so many guys come through there. I can't remember for sure if, if I did or not. I don't, I don't remember. 
Yeah, what a special guy. He, he was unbelievable, both, you know, NFL and Major League Baseball. All right, so 1996, you head over to the Bears for 96-97. Um, how was that moving from Miami? You know, that's all you knew to that point. Now, all of a sudden, you're going to Chicago. Long history of, of uh, you know, big-time linebackers went through, went through Chicago. Uh, how was that time for you, leaving Miami? Um. It was bittersweet because I left Miami because they fired Don Shula and hired Jimmy Johnson. I was over at the Pro Bowl when the news broke, and when I came back, Jimmy Johnson wanted to meet with me. And I said to him, if you don't sign me back, you don't get Troy Vincent and you don't get Marco Coleman. He said, well, we'll see about that. So he said, my friend Dave Wonstadt wants you to come up to Chicago. I want you to go pay a visit. And I went to uh, I went to uh, Chicago, and of course, being my home state team, I kind of kind of enjoyed that. The fan support up there is incredible. Uh, we weren't able to get it done though as a team, though we, we we struggled trying to find quarterbacks. I mentioned Rick Meyer, and we had a number of quarterbacks in those two years that we were up there. And we just could never turn the corner. Uh, the experience was. Really good, though. I'm really appreciative of the time that I was able to spend there. Day one step was a wonderful um, coach for me. With just anytime you're in the NFL and you don't have a quarterback, you're not going to win. It's just that simple. Uh, headed to the Jets next. Bill Parcells, uh, before you know that infamous Patriot in, in the beginning of that run. But what were those years from 98 to 2004 with the Jets, Bill Parcells? Incredible. Um, I, I, I say this with all due respect. I, I said it before that I played for three Hall of Famers. Don Shula taught me how to be a man. Um, Bill Parcells and Bill Belichick made people rethink what they thought about Brian Cox. They did a complete breakdown and rebuild of my character and of my uh, plan ability. Um, Parcells knew uh, that um, I was going to retire after I got cut by the Browns. And he called me and said, you don't want to get, you don't want to make it your legacy that you cut by the worst team in the league and you go retire. So he, he played against my, my competitive spirit. And so he got me up there, and Bill Belichick was the defense coordinator, and those two reshaped what people thought about me. So I'm, I'm, I have a, a, a heap of gratitude and, and wealth of uh, thanks to those two guys because, you know, when Bill left and, and when Parcells left and Al Groh came in and Belichick stepped down and went to, went to New England, that was kind of different. But uh, it was – those three years, or at least the first two years before Al Groh took over, and, and Al's a great man. I'm not saying anything bad against him, but the two years against uh, playing playing with Parcells as the head coach, and we went to Denver and lost to Elway in the last game at Mile High Stadium. That was a hell of a team. We should have did. Um, we should have put ourselves in position to go to the Super Bowl, but uh, I think. Victor Green got the ball thrown over his head, which he never did, which was a surprise. And then uh, we had a running back from Ohio State, Keith Byers, never fumbled. He fumbled in the game, and we lost it. And 
you know, Elway and them won. Congratulations to them. But it was a hell of a game. And uh, so that was um, two years where I really, really appreciated the fact that I was having fun in football again. You know, isn't it amazing that things that, that, that happen in our lives and, and we don't know why, <laughs> what the reason is, but it kind of reshapes it. Because like you said, Parcells, uh, whatever he said to you made you come to the Jets. Belichick's the defensive uh defensive coach for the Jets. He ends up going to the Patriots, and I'm sure it wasn't a coincidence that in 01, you head to the Patriots. And now you're playing yeah, for Bill I, Belichick. Yeah. The first thing Bill tells me when I go, go into his office to meet with him is don't take over this team. So he was trying to grow leadership, and he didn't want me to take over the team and come in and just kind of put my stamp on it. He wanted me to kind of sit back and let some of these other guys grow into leadership roles. But eventually I took over and, um, you know, the first couple games of the year, I think we started out one and three. We were, I think he was going to get fired. I think Kraft was going to fire him. But then the Indianapolis coach rolled into town and they were undefeated. And I think we beat them like 44 to 10 or something like that. And then we got on a nice little roll and uh, we were able to, to have some success then and made it all the way to the Super Bowl and beat the St. Louis Rams. And it's amazing that year. It's uh, it's not the Patriots that we know today that you're coming to in 2001. This is the beginning. You mentioned Bledsoe, two games. Brady takes over and plays the next 14. You guys win that first of, you know, now I can't even keep count with these Patriot uh, Super Bowl championships. But I don't know, Belichick bring you over? Because he wanted kind of your type of guy, that toughness brought to that Patriot organization? I think more than anything, I think he felt like they lacked leadership maybe at the time. And so when I came over, you had the Lawyer Malloys and you had the Ty Laws and you had the Willie McGinnis and you had the Bobby Hamilton's and you had the, the Mike Brables and you had – you know, you had some solid guys on defense. But if you remember that first Super Bowl, we scored more special teams touchdowns and defensive touchdowns in the playoffs than Tom Brady threw for. Or the offense scored, as a matter of fact. And so it was certainly built around the defense and not losing the game on offense. And then eventually, when Tom got rolling, it became an offense and you know, we're going to let Tom go throw the ball around and then we're still going to play good defense. But they just play complimentary football. Um, the thing that I learned playing in the league for as long as I did, there are a lot of people that don't know what the hell they're doing and they talk about being aggressive where really they just saying, I have no clue what I'm doing. We want to be aggressive. We want to throw the ball. Why would you do that and you got to leave? Why would, it don't make sense to me. That's dumb. Just run the ball. You know, or you get into situations where we wanted to be aggressive on that play. Like, really? You were stupid on that play. Like, it's so many things. Like, football, there are so many people, coaches, I should say, that lose games than coaches that win games. Because there are certain co coaches that's just going to do dumb things. There are certain quarterbacks that lose the game for you. They'll give you opportunity. You just can't drop it when they throw it to your hands. You can, you got to pick up the fumble recovery when the running back fumbles. There are teams that just find ways to screw games up. 
in, in that postseason, the uh, first game, I, I think first round of playoffs, you played the Raiders, right? Second round. Oh, second round. First second round. round. Yeah. yeah. But what, what was – now, the rules have been changed since then, the no-tuck rule. But there was I've a huge – I've never heard of that rule in my life. And, and it changed the whole game, didn't it? At that point, you end up winning the game where if it, the call by the ref would have gone the other way, you end up losing the game. And then the rest is history. Right. Now, I, I will say this. I've never heard of that rule. Until, I've never heard of that rule until that time. I still don't understand that rule right now. I was on the sideline when, when, when uh, the ball got stripped away from Tom Brady. I was taking the tape off of my finger. That was, was a like, fumble. Game is over. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so when they gave us the ball back, we still had to march down the field and score to tie the game. And then we had to go to overtime to win it. The Raiders can cry all they want. They may have a valid argument, but all you had to do when the game started back is just stop us and then there would be no argument. So I'm not giving my ring back. I'm not giving it back. <laughs> I ain't sure I won. When I do Don't. put it on. And that brings me to the referees. You know, my relationship, uh, and I tell this to young players now, those umpires are your friends. If you're in the big leagues and you're in the big leagues for a long time, mm-hmm. you, these umpires aren't going anywhere. That's why you look at a major league baseball umpire. Oh, it's 27th year in the league. So they're not going anywhere. So yeah. I always went out of my way to, you know what, I better have a relationship. There's going to be a guy at second tonight, second base umpire, and guess what? Two nights from now, he's going to be calling balls and strikes. So it's right. probably, probably, you know, it, it, it probably is prudent of me to at least get along with him. Hey, Johnny, how you doing? Where, did you go to dinner last night? Where'd you have? You know, have a good relationship with him. As time right. moves on, uh, you know, you don't want to be at odds with with the umpire. Now that's that's baseball. That's professional baseball. What is the relationship? Is it similar in the NFL with the, when it comes to the referees? How's that back and forth? It is pretty good for the most part. There are probably three guys that I hated, and not because they were bad people; they were bad officials. You know, it, 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 when you're out there and you're working that hard, there's going to be some mistakes. You understand that. But it's just like anything else in life. They're bad football players. They're bad uh, baseball players. They're bad hockey players. They're bad officials. And there are some officials that just would make the wrong call and stay with it because they felt like had they changed it and made it right, that it would, it would be detrimental to them somehow. They get graded. That's the thing I think that the NFL does the best. But there are good people. Most of them are good people. Most of them, you know, football is their uh, – officiating football is their second job. Most of them are school teachers or principals or things like that. And most of them, they're all good people. I haven't met a person that I was like, oh, I don't like that guy as an official. But, you know, I didn't like some of them as officials. I like them as people. And I think, you know, all I ask uh, from an umpire is give me an honest effort. Give me, give me, I want a high level of integrity. I want you to establish your zone early in the game. And if I know that pitch may be at the knees and away is a strike, well, you've got to give me some on the inside, but establish your zone early. And as long as you let everybody know what your zone is and stick to it, 
uh, I always respected that because because it's a you know, it's the human element being an umpire. You're going to miss a call once in a while. That's just life. Uh, We as players are going to screw up. That's just life. But as long as you give me an honest effort and integrity is at the forefront. Uh, yeah, most most big league umpires, they're good guys, too. And, and they really are. And it, just give me an effort and we're all going to have good days and we're all going to have bad days. I'd have some umpires going, Booney, I don't know what I'm doing today. <laughs> so so be sweet. I might call it right down the middle of ball and, and a foot outside a strike. I'm having a rough day. But but it was the human element that I liked. Just give me the effort. Give me the effort. Right. No question. Uh, after the 0-2 season with the Saints, uh, you retire. You did a little did a little radio show. Did you like that? And and when you were playing, did you, did you plan on? Did you have a plan for when you were done playing, or did just it just evolve? No, I, I, I got my degree in broadcast communication, so I knew it was something that I wanted to do. So I went to ESPN, and uh, then I got fired for this one. Uh, <laughs> this one, the uh, controversy with uh, Rush Limbaugh talking about Donovan McNabb. I went in there and asked, was I working for a racist company and got into a hole? And they was like, your contract won't be renewed. So I moved out to Fox Sports and, did the best damn sports show period a couple of years. And then I did a, um, a national syndicated radio show with Chris Myers before I went into coaching. And then I coached and that brought me to, uh, you know, 12 years, uh, 10 years coaching. I got fired after, you know, the Falcons lost the Super Bowl, And now I'm just chilling, playing golf in uh, celebrity tournaments and enjoying life. Yeah. You coach for the Jets, Browns, Bucks, and the Falcons. You did Hard Knocks, and I got to see a little bit of your personality on Hard Knocks before I met you. But mm-hmm. um, you won a Super Bowl as a player. That was an interesting Super Bowl that you went to that 16th season. And, you know, I, I couldn't help. You were talking about it earlier. Coaches lose games more than they win games for you. Now, just mm-hmm. as a just as a fan, I'm sitting there watching that Super Bowl. You're kicking Brady's ass. It's over at halftime. Mm-hmm. Now, all of a sudden, mm-hmm. boom, uh-oh, what's going on here? Now, he couldn't possibly come back from that big of a deficit. Mm-hmm. Give, me, give me the difference of being at the Super Bowl as a player when you've got control of things. You're out in the field making plays. Now you're a right. coach. You're sitting on the sidelines, and you're watching that 16 Super Bowl unfold what's going through brian cox mind somebody make a play (laughs) if i was playing the mentality would have been brian go make one play the game's over and so let me make this abundantly clear i don't blame any offensive coach the head coach on the on the staff for not winning the super bowl i blame myself because we set three Super Bowl records with, with hits on the quarterback and sacks on the quarterback and how many times he was hit in the first half. I did not have the foresight to play my backups more early in the game so that when we got the crunch time, my players would play more. Now, in fairness to myself, I think that as a player in the Super Bowl, if you have to play 93 plays or 193 pro- plays, you must up the strength to make a play to be national champion forever. 
Uh, but if I had to do it all over again, I would have gave those guys some help. We ran out of gas. We ran out of gas. And, you know, when you're on the sideline and you're talking to guys and they just got the blank stare look going on, you know, holy shit, we're in trouble. And that's, that's a bad feeling when you when you sitting there looking at guys and you're like, we are in trouble. Got a son. He's coming back from an injury right now. Um, followed in dad's footsteps. Uh, how's that been for you, watching your son kind of chasing the same dream that, that you you had accomplished? It's, it's, it's great and it's nerve-wracking at the same time because some people won't give your son a chance because they don't like you or they holding it holding a grudge against you. And I find that to be the case, unfortunately. And, you know, some people that I thought would give him more of an opportunity didn't. And so I just want to see my son live his best life and go out and play ball the way he wants to play and take care of his opportunity. So, he, you know, he was in Buffalo or he is in Buffalo and, uh, you know, he tore his Achilles, so he's out for the season and he's rehabbing, getting himself together. But I just want him to have an opportunity to live out his dreams like I did for 12 years. It's amazing, isn't it? Now being being a dad, I, I got a son that's playing. And, man, when we're going through it and the grind and, and, and how tough, you know, big situations come up big. Sometimes we failed. But, man, watching right. your kid play, it's like it's, it's way tougher, you know. And, and, yeah. and I see him succeed in a big situation. It's like I'm so excited, but it's like. I don't remember being this excited when I got a hit in that situation, but when your son does, it's, I don't know. There's something about it. I've talked to fathers, a lot of, a lot of ex players that their kids are pursuing their dreams now. And it seems like we all have the same reaction. Like, well, it was no big deal when we were playing, but man, when that, when that kid's on the field and you're watching them, it's the emotions are different. You know, I I can't really put my finger on it, but it's different. It's, It's because it's your blood and you raised him. And it's just like when your father felt about when you were doing it and he was in that same situation, he was saying, man, I'm awfully proud of my kid for doing it. Like I, I, I feel like my son was self-made. He had a, a good junior year of college at the university of Florida. His senior year was more with injury and then he played horrible and he was a free agent, but I thought like he was like, better than some guys that got drafted and just never got the real opportunity to go show what he could do. And he was, the light was just starting to come on. He was really starting to get good with his speed and conditioning in the off season. And his work ethic was really getting to where it needed to be. And all of a sudden you get hurt. I mean, that's a tough thing to swallow. Brian Cox, what do you want to be remembered for? Um, I want to be remembered for, um, a player that gave it all that I had for every team that I played for. But more importantly, that I also contributed to the community by trying to help out kids and trying to help out different charities. But at the end of the day, that I was a competitor, that I played my heart out, and I tried to do what was right as a teammate and as a football player and as a coach. Awesome. It's been a pleasure, Brian, getting to know you. Uh, 
getting to chop it up for an hour or so. Uh, unbelievable career. I wish you the best for, for your son. And uh, as we always do at the end of the Boone podcast is we bring in Dan Levy for a question from the fans. Dan? Brian, how are you? Good. What's happening? All right. Doug in Atlanta wants to know this. I know you've had some ball carriers and quarterbacks that you've crushed in your career, but I want to know who hit you the hardest during your playing career. Larry Allen. When he was playing for the Dallas Cowboys, he was the best guard and or tackle that I've ever played. So he, he was number one at both positions. Wow. All right. And this one comes from Dan in Chicago. That's me. Bears mm-hmm. town. You were a bear. You're from the area. Why do the Bears have so many problems with quarterbacks out here? Because <laughs> the problem <laughs> is you don't get to play in that weather like that in college. But when you get to Chicago, the weather is such a factor that unless you have a top five pick, like Green Bay was able to go get um, Aaron Rodgers, um, Chicago needs to be able to get a top two or three pick and get the best quarterback with a strong arm. And then when they've had the opportunity to do so, they passed on the guy. Like, you don't think they would love to have Patrick Mahomes right now or um, the Bills quarterback, Josh Allen? You don't think they'd love to have him? They, they, they pick some, they've had some poor quarterback choices. Brian Cox, thank you so much for coming on the Boom Podcast. We really appreciate it. Thank you, bro. Appreciate it. Mailbag. All right, Boone, you know that sound, don't you? <sighs> Mailbag time, Dan. Mailbag time, Boone. All right, Brett, this one comes from Jimmy in Lakeland, and he wants to know this. Brett, if you played football, what position would you have played? Oh, man. I don't think – man, I I don't think I was fast enough to be a defensive defensive back. I was fast, but, I mean, that's kind of – you got to be fast, fast. Um, Wasn't really tall enough. I would have had to be an outside linebacker because I was fast enough to be an outside linebacker, but, but I wasn't big enough. I don't know. NFL fits going to be tougher for me from a size standpoint uh, and the position I'd have to play, uh, you know, with the speed fact. From what I heard, you would have made for a great tight end. Okay. Back into the mailbag we go. And this question comes from Steven Chicago, Brett. How much of an advantage do division winners have over wildcard teams? A lot with the current setup. Well, obviously because of the one game playoff, I think, I think they need to get rid of that. And if you're going to make it a wild card, uh, you know, you have the potential this year and of, of a team winning 90 games and having a one game playoff. I mean, that's pretty tough uh, to swallow. I, th- I think there should be at least three games. I think, the new rule of the one game playoff, I think it's great because it gives an extra team a chance. It keeps more cities in the hunt. It keeps September more exciting. But I think once you get to the postseason and establish yourself as a wild card team, one and done is too much. At least make it a best out of three. All right. Well, we will make this the best out of every podcast because we do nothing but perfection here on the Brett Boone Podcast. My name is Dan Levy. I'm the technical director as well as producer and the voice of the Boone Podcast. Executive producer of the Boone Podcast, Rich Herrera. 
Digital content gets handled by Liz Landry. Please share the Boom Podcast with neighbors and friends, and make sure you subscribe to the Boom Podcast so you never miss an episode of the show. While you're at it, give it a five-star rating and share your feelings about the podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to the show. For all of us here on the Boom Podcast, I'm Dan Levy. Thanks for listening. See you next time.